いらっしゃいませ。Welcome to Historical Fantasy. I'm Guadalupe Lee with the cold, and with me is Noel Sayar. All right. So quickly before we get started, I just wanted to make a small correction from the last episode we did on the Bronze Age. Noel asked me what time period in ancient Egypt I had based this story off. I said the Middle Kingdom, but I actually meant the New Kingdom, which lasted from about 1550 BCE to 1050 BCE. So even though we call it the New Kingdom, it happened over 3,000 years ago. Anyway, <laughs> that's all I wanted to say. I mentioned quite briefly that I have cold. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that very much, but I'm going to actually try to not talk too much this episode. And since in the last episode about the Bronze Age, Noel was interviewing me, I'm going to interview him this time. And we are going to be talking about Japanese swords and weaponry. Yeah, this is. So maybe first you can just give us a little bit of a background, and then we can delve in deeper. Yes. Well, usually when the people think in samurai weapons, they think in swords, in the katana, more precisely. But we should say that the samurais don't start to be fighter that use. Swords. The origin of the samurais was like the mounted archery. I think that we comment about that, like yeah. uh, in the past podcast. The introduction of the cavalry in the military tactics become more and more like important. Adapt the weapons to this new like a warfare, and especially during the Mongolian invasions of the century 13, become obvious that they should like adapt like the actual swords. That was straight swords imported from. The Chinese fashions for the cooler ones that are designed for riding the horse and also for combat, like the cavalry. So you're saying they got inspiration from the Mongolian swords? No, the Mongolian invasions give the necessity of the Japanese to adapt the swords from this new kind of warfare. Is that because they had an advantage because they had more cavalry? Yes, cavalry was introduced like before, but uh, the the Mongolian invasion make obvious that cavalry will be like important role during the next centuries. Right, so that's about three hundred years before the Edo era. Yes, I should also say that there is a tiny puppy on me at the moment who keeps trying to eat my hands, <laughs> but I'm gonna try to ignore him. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Obviously, three hundred years between when they first started using the katana and the Edo era, there was a lot of adjusting. Yes, in fact, like the katana was not used until almost the Edo era. Before was used a sword called tachi that was more long and more curved. During the Edo periods, appeared like the concept of daisho, that is the pair of katana and wakizashi. That is a like a short sword. Around forty centimeter long,、yeah. and this become the symbol of the samurai. Yeah, if anyone's ever seen like mounted katana swords, there's always a longer one and a shorter one. Yeah, exactly. I have a question between the tachi and the katana、mm -hmm. because when when we visited museums, we saw a lot of these blades on display. Yeah. And the tachi blades were always facing down, and the katana blades were always facing up. Yes. Is there An actual reason that they did that, or it is in fact because the tachi was bigger and more curved. The way that it's holding it is with the shape facing down. Yeah. But the katana it is facing up 
because it is like a less curved and can put it inside the obi. So the shaped part facing up, more comfortable for wearing. So it was just fashion, basically. Well, it is for how become like a more comfortable to wear into, into battle. Yes. More efficient. Yeah, I think so. Now, I've always thought the Tachi was cooler, but maybe that's just because I think bigger swords are cooler. Yeah. But why did they stop using the Tachi blade and start going towards the two blades? Well, the reason of the Wakifashi was merely like a formal was just like a, the symbol of the status of the samurai. Well, that's what they used during seppuku, right? Yes. The gokifashi is the weapon used during the seppuku. That's the one that they shove into their stomachs and yeah. cut it open. Well, some of them managed to cut it open. Yes. <laughs> but yes, I mean, obviously, with the pass of the year, it started to become the weapon associated for the seppuku because in the beginning was the weapon associated for the samurai clan for itself. Now, obviously the katana was not the only weapon that samurais used, but by the Edo era, that was the weapon that was associated purely with samurai. Yeah, was obviously the more iconic, but they used another weapons, like for example, use the naginata, that is like a long pole with like a blade in the oh, point. The, the dog is barking! <laughs> come here, Watson! Watson, come here! All right, puppy crisis has been solved. <laughs> He's now in another room, distracted by a stuffed toy. So there's a lot of historical and literary and legendary figures surrounding sword making mm -hmm. and weaponry in general. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the people behind the sword. Yes, the centuries 13 or 14, that is the Kamakura period, was known as a golden age of the sword forging. And happened that after that came the Senkoku periods, the periods of the civil wars around Japan. So they make the necessity to create a lot of number of swords. So they start to decrease the quality, making cheap and expendable. And after the Edo period, because it is no words, they also don't have the necessity to create like a high quality swords. So despite of the imaginary of the people, the Edo's wars, they are not the more quality ones. But they're actually made out of pig steel, right? Or pig iron? Is that what it's called? Pig iron? It's called pig iron. It, butatetsu? Yeah, but... It's, it's like really low quality, and like the reason why they had to do all those folds is because... It's such low quality that you have to work it harder. That's what I heard. Oh, I didn't hear about that. <laughs> But happened that um, during this golden age, it is two names that probably is the more famous, that is Masamune and Murasama. Not Date Masamune. No, no, no. Another family. So in the century 13, it is two families blacksmith. Muras Let me guess, they fought against each other. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Murasama was a pupil from Black Samune. Okay. In the first time, Murasama desafiated his old master to create the best world ever. And then he killed him, and then scarred his son, and then the <laughs> son grew up and hunted him down and exacted his revenge? Not exactly. <laughs> Part of the try is put the sword in the river. They put the blade in the river. Yes, and, and observe how they are cutting. Debris floating on the river. Yes, when Murasama put the sword in the river, put everything that took us to it, like a floating leaves, fishes, or even butterflies. 
Why are butterflies floating on the river? <laughs> it's a, no, it's not floating. They are like a flame. But they're just holding the sword still, and things are passing. I don't know them. if holding the steel of the stab, they, oh, like, they a, like stab it into the river. I think it is the more probable. Okay. The butterfly was flying, but because the sword is so sharpened that just only the like the minimum touch make the butterfly like a, like a die. I'm imagining exploding with all these flames everywhere. It's a tail. I mean, that's um, the Michael Bay. I mean, probably don't happen. <laughs> but happened that when Masamune put his sword, only cut floating leaves, but don't kill fishes or the or the butterflies. Okay. Murasama think that is like a one show of like a weakness. And he say that his sword is better. But one monk that was watching everything say that the Murasama's words, they are like a bloodthirsty. Meanwhile, like the Masamune ones, they only could the exactly can needed. It only does what is required of it. Exactly. And probably like a, this tale is associated with the history of Tokugawa. Because Tokugawa banned the family of the Mur- Muramasa blacksmith because technically the Muramasa's words was cursed. Because, like, Iyasu Tokugawa have a lot of bad luck during holding, like, a Muramasa swords. The grandfather was killed by one. He was tried to assassinate once with another Muramasa sword. And also he lose one of the battles when he was, like, a welding one. Mm-hmm. So because of that, like, all the world family was, like, a banner. <laughs> That's so harsh. I know. <laughs> because I failed while holding one of your swords. <laughs> I forbid you from making any more. And like a Masamune make probably the more famous sword ever. That is called like a Hojo Masamune. Hojo Masamune? Yes. But was the sword like the Oda Nobunaga was welding during all the war. And then this sword passed to Yasu Tokugawa. And then become the symbol of the shogunate. And was a kind of relic that was passing from one shogun to another. Is it still around? It's another funny part of the history. Okay. Because after the Second World War, the army of the USA banned and requisite all of the swords in the country. And this, one of them. What? Happened that like uh, three years later, when like uh, the US should like uh, return all of these swords, this one was missed. Oh. And nowadays, nobody has a clue where that score is. Oh my god. So some skeevy American officer has it in his attic, probably? <laughs> Unfortunately, probably. That. That's horrible. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so Hattori Hanzo, not a sword maker? No. Uh, despite <laughs> like uh, the Kill Bill movie. Like, uh, well, first, we, first, explain who Hattori Hanzo is. And he, I mean, it's such an interesting historical figure, but he's also become a literary figure and he is a character that appears in multiple films. Yes. Um, so, yeah, please, like, tell us a little <laughs> bit about who Hattori Hanzo is. Well, Hattori Hanzo, like, was one son that born in, like, a minor family, was a vassal of, like, the Tokugawa family. Mm-hmm. But he became famous when, in his first battle, with 16 years old, help during like at the siege of the Kamigano castle, where like the daughter of Tokugawa was kidnapped. 
Oh, so he rescued the boss's daughter? Mm, well, don't rescue her directly, but help to open the, the walls of the castle. Right. So made that Tokugawa be able to invade the castle easily, leading to the... Yeah, so still, that's a pretty good move on his part. So he become the, we can say, personal ninja of Ieyasu <laughs> Tokugawa. <laughs> That's aw- if that was an actual position, that's awesome. Well, it is one of the things that because general, like speaking, like the ninjas become with like a one aura of mystic. Yeah, they're up there with samurais being sort of legendary warriors. Maybe ninjas are a bit more on the mythical. Yes, but really like it is schools of ninjas in that time. And the ninja was not this like a able murder, like a poisoning, like a the drink, was more like pies, explorers, right. that, yes, eventually they make some murders, but yeah. they are not the main function. Right. So he, like a born in one, like a ninja families, that is like a, the Iga school of ninjas. And after that, it's become like a, this school of ninjas become especially popular and just become the main like a ninja school that served so, the, the Tokugawa family. And also like a one funny like things about Hattori Hanzo is like the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. One of the doors that make access to the Imperial Palace have his name after him. So it's like a Hansomon door. Hanzo door? Yeah, it is, uh, it is called after Hattori Hanzo. And also it's like a one metro line it is called like a handsome online. So indirectly, like a Hattori Hanzo is give the name of one of the actual metro lines of the Tokyo. Ah, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> He's been modernized. Yeah. All right. Do you have any like last interesting facts? Or? I think like we cover the most important aspect. All right. So there we go. A nice little history about some of some of the people involved in sword making and sword making yeah. itself. I think it's really interesting. We can't go into it too much, but katanas are still made today in, yes. in Japan. And we actually went to this really interesting exhibit one time where the, these master swordsmen made katanas inspired by the anime Evangelion. Mm-hmm. And they were all on display. They were absolutely fantastic. And I think I'll have to put some photos up on my blog at guaneverelee.com and you guys can check those out. Maybe I'll put them up on my Instagram too. Guanevere underscore Lee. Alright, so until next time. Iterashai. You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run, you scream, you cry. You run and run and run. And you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lita and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on Chanillo.com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. 
ocean. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast? Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home, or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O dot com. We were the first, and we will be the last. From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, the White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the White Snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsahalpa, the jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate, Tuhark, the merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the Whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit GuinevereLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E.com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by Bensound.com.